Japan by River Cruise is made possible thanks to those who donate to the show at japanbyrivercruise.com and due to the generosity of our corporate sponsors. This week's show is brought to you by Family Mart Socks. Family Mart Socks. Why? Because we've been in a pandemic for almost two years and honestly we're starting to lose it. Just let us have this. Hello, Brian, and welcome back to Japan by River Cruise. I'm Bobby Judo. And I'm Ollie Horn. And joining us this week is Hiromu Nagahara. Hiromu is an associate professor of modern Japanese history at MIT and the author of Tokyo Boogie Woogie, Japan's Pop Era and Its Discontents. He's also the faculty advisor to an MIT student club that's developing nuclear fusion-powered river cruise boats as part of a very elaborate prank on Harvard and Yale. Hiromu, thanks for being here. It's a real pleasure to be here. On this week's show, we'll talk to Hiromu about tumultuous times for the Japanese imperial family, including Princess Mako's upcoming move to the U.S. with her new husband. We reached out to both Princess Mako and Oprah Winfrey to see if we could expect another bombshell royal interview, but unfortunately both sides responded by saying, Who? Plus, Ali's got your weekly River Cruise recommendation. Ali? Yes, Bobby, this week's recommendation is a new startup cruise liner run by French transport conglomerate SNCF that promises to treat its customers like royalty. Given what I know about how they treated their royals in the late 1700s, I've sought urgent clarification on what they mean by that before I'm able to recommend it. And we'll talk to a recycling-focused river cruise company who's planning a special limited-edition autumn run on a man-made river created exclusively out of all the pumpkin spice lattes that will be left over when y'all remember that they suck. I'm legit upset that we had to talk about pumpkin spice lattes and socks <laughs> in, this, in this episode. Twitter, you did this. But first, Soap Talk. Brian, anything to add this week before we get started? Uh, no. Okay. Bobby. Yes. You're a YouTuber again. Yeah, uh, I, I just put up a video introducing what I'm planning on doing with my channel. I, I'm getting back into video production and remembering why I got out of it. It takes a long time and it's really hard. It takes forever. With a, with a podcast, all you have to do is record audio and then get someone to edit it for you. Yeah, it couldn't be easier for you, could it? Um, so, I mean, you spent, you, you've just spent the introduction uh, dicking on people that have gone mad and bought Family Mart socks. Your version of the pandemic breakdown is reopening your YouTube channel. Well, this uh, is why something, has it taken you two years? This is something I do periodically. Every time I start to get financially insecure, I go, maybe, maybe I can, I can <laughs> get something from YouTube again. Uh, but no, I, I've, I've got. Um, I spent some of the pandemic working on kind of like a, a pseudo memoir of some of my experiences in the entertainment industry here. And I had a bunch of good stories from, from there and stories that I don't get to share at the podcast because someone doesn't let me talk. Uh, <laughs> so I thought that might be a good, a good place to share kind of some of those stories. So what you're actually saying is you don't get enough air time on this show. So you've had to start a whole new YouTube channel. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. Speaking of not letting people talk, uh, Hiroma, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. You're joining us from Boston. Um, so you're you're an associate professor of modern Japanese history. I would love to get some Japanese history study recommendations. I've got I've literally got um, 
the Samson books on my shelf and also uh, Modern Japanese History by Gordon. And I've tried so hard to read them and I can never make it through. What other books can gather dust on Bobby's shelf, please? Uh, no, yeah, you got some classics there. Sansom is really, I mean, that's the original Sansom, right? From yeah, the British yeah. diplomat who was in Japan in Meiji era. Um, well, uh, you know, something that I think has been going around the inter- internet, it's been really popular, I've really enjoyed it, um, is, a, is a book by um, uh, a colleague of mine named Amy Stanley. Uh, mm. It's a book called uh, Stranger in the Shogun City. Uh, it's about a otherwise obscure uh, provincial woman in the Edo period in eighteen, or the first half of the eighteen hundreds, who uh, is born as a daughter of a, a temple priest. Um, so a little bit well educated, but you know not super well off. Uh, and you know uh, Amy Stanley, who's a professor of early modern Japanese history at Northwestern, uh, found a stash of letters between her and her family throughout the course of her life. And oh, so, so this is a it, real, this isn't historical fiction. This is a real woman. It's it's not a historical fiction, but Amy writes it so well that it reads really nicely. And and so, uh, no, it's based on primary sources. It's based on actual historical sources. Amy is a top-notch scholar, but it paints this really vivid life of this woman who is, I think, married and divorced four times uh, because she is a woman, Japanese woman living in Edo period. But eventually... Did they call it Batsuyon back then? Uh, I, I don't think so. But although stigma stigma did, uh, you know, came along with it. But she actually does make it out to uh, sort of strike her own path and goes to Edo. Uh, which is, you know, the, the the largest city in Japan, and, and in fact, one of the largest city by population in the world, period, at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, uh, tries to strike her own path, suffers, but eventually finds a man that she chooses on her own to marry, uh, you know, who she is with when, when she dies. And it's this sort of really dramatic um, life of an otherwise obscure woman, but uh, it's a g- super great introduction to uh, what... Edo the city was like what actually it felt like to live and breathe and smell the food and walk the streets and get robbed and uh etc etc so uh you know I highly recommend um Amy Stanley's Stranger in the Shogun City that sounds really really good uh this is a super basic question but but for someone like me who's come over from a different country and who's lived here uh more than a decade and still doesn't know a whole lot about the history of the country. Do you think that that I, I'd stand to benefit, or or do you think it's it's even kind of <laughs> kind of arrogant of me to be here and not know as much of the history? Do you think do you think I'd have a different perspective if I knew more about it? I think you'll definitely stand to benefit, just you know, in terms of the pleasure of, uh, you know, thinking about or realizing that the places that you're walking, where you are, even in Kyushu, um, has these you know hundreds and thousands of years of rich history and layers, some of, you know, some of which, some of whose remains you might actually find. And to be fair, I think, you know, your most average Japanese don't know much about the history of their own country, you know, notoriously, like as in America, uh, you know, public school, you know, education system only teaches you so much and only at the surface level. Um, And, you know, it's really only after I became a historian of Japan that, uh, 
I walked around Tokyo and realized, wow, there's just so much of history still left. In the very way in which the city is organized, the way some neighborhoods' streets are lined up,、uh, you know, when, it, when did it happen that, you know, the canals around Tokyo got covered by highways and, and concrete and things like that when、uh, apparently it used to be called the Venice of the East?、Um, so、uh, I think you'll, you'll, I think there's a lot to be. Enjoyed and you know, pleasure to take in out of learning about、uh, the past of where you are. But it's about learning what aspect of it, right? Because, like, you know, Bobby's question was basically asking for permission for his ignorance. And I think you granted it. <laughs>、um, you know, it's just like in the UK, you, you don't get a better, a richer history of London by like knowing that Henry the, Se- Henry, the relationship between Henry the Seventh and Henry the Eighth. But you definitely, like, you definitely get to understand how, how London was. Uh, created by looking at like, the various interests of the various political parties in the early 1900s and, and how they were interested in commerce and how that affected the railways and things like that. So, it definitely obviously affects like, what you study. And what I found interesting about your research background is that you look at the, the relationship between politics and art and, and how the, well, what you call them, the, the, the elite members of, of, of Japan or something like that, the ruling elite, and, and how they integrate worldwide. Art is obviously seen as a big cultural export of, of Japan.、Mm-hmm. And, and we've had guests on the podcast before who talk about you know, Japan's modern、um, contribution to the world is, is that of, of digital art and, 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 and whatnot. Is that something which Japan has,、uh, has leveraged historically more than other countries? Oh my gosh, I know, I know a little bit about this. I'm doing a translation project. I was just. So I'm not going to. I just want to brag that I know about Sano Tsunetame's <laughs> Japanism. <laughs> Uh, and how he used it strategically to help kickstart Japan's industrial economy. But anyway,、um, mm. yeah. I'm going to show off that I know something. One of my favorite <laughs> facts about Japanese history, which might not even be true, is the Prussian blue. You know, the thing that, that, like, that, that really deep, rich blue that we see in like, Hokusai's prints. Yeah. Apparently, that, was, that came like, really recently in Japanese history, and that was as a result of, of commerce rather than art. And it was like they could only get their hands on that color. So I, I love, I just love stuff like this.、Yeah. But anyway, I've had a little show off. Bobby's had a little show off. Shall we ask the expert to answer my question? <laughs> no, absolutely. I think that's always been part of, at least, you know, I think many countries, but certainly Japan has been in the business of both exporting、uh, its kind of alt cultural and artistic traditions,、uh, even at the same time as it imported, you know, from all over the world. And,、um, You know, it's, I think it's really intriguing that when Japan,、uh, quote unquote, opens up in the middle of the 19th century,、uh, you know, coincides with a period where there's a massive interest,、uh, both in the United States in, and in Europe,、uh, about all things Japanese, right?、Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where,、um, you know,、uh, the term like Japaning, Which I think refers to lacquerware,、um, you know, came up because Americans and Europeans were buying up Japanese urushinuri, you know, lacquerware products,、uh, you know,、uh, paintings, woodlock, brick, woodlock print、uh, copies.、Um, you know,、uh, as Japanese merchants, you know, realize, oh, wow, you know, these Westerners really love buying these things, right? And then they, they end up going all the way to France and inspiring. Uh, Monet and other impressionists. And, but it's really not until after 1868 when the Meiji Restoration overthrows you know, the Tokugawa shogunate.、Uh, and 
there's a kind of national shift in mindset of Japanese uh, becoming increasingly really eager, right, to uh, uh, adopt and learn uh, anything and everything Western, whether it's technology or the science or law uh, or, for that matter, culture. And these Japanese starts, you know, Japanese, young Japanese starts going overseas and uh, actually experience American and European street life and uh, art, art scene and music scene and theater for the first time uh, that, you know, they actually not only go there and l realize that, oh, we can learn a lot of things, but they also, I think, start to take pleasure in what they see and hear and smell and taste, right? And of course, at this period, these are very limited, usually more politically elite families or people who are, you know, sent by government to go overseas uh, who... Yeah can actually consume these products and then uh, take on these trappings of Western culture that they genuinely enjoy for themselves. But, but, but it's fascinating that, that you, for, for all that you can kind of grandstand and theorize about, you know, and obviously the major restoration was obviously more than that, right? You know, the import of law and code and whatever. But sometimes it does come down to the fact that like some kid of some diplomat tried really nice bread and they were like, love this. And that kind of influences policy more, you know, than 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 any kind of planning done in in a parliament. Far more of the world that we uh, that we enjoy now is based on the incentives of people who are thinking only about themselves. Yeah, and you know, I think that they they have a really um, uh, usually they have a good way of rationalizing for rationalizing it for themselves and for others of why this is super important. And you know, you see that <laughs> yeah. it, you see that in music, right? So uh, you know these. You know, samurai, former samurai or non-samurai elites go to overseas. They listen to, you know, the opera. Uh, they really enjoy it. Um, and they come home convinced that real music, quote unquote, real serious music is Western art music, what we would call classical music. Mm -hmm. That's the st gold standard of what a good music is. And so they come back and then, you know, some of them actually still have some affinity to indigenous domestic musical traditions, but a lot of them also feel like, oh, these are kind of icky. These are, you know, we. this feels either old-fashioned or this is below me. In fact, yeah, uh, yeah. Kikawa, who you know, I was talking about earlier, this young student who goes, studies in Boston, um, talks in his autobiography about, about how in the American school that he attended in Boston, the only class that he absolutely hated and he and his fellow Japanese students asked a teacher, pleaded with them not to make them take the class was the music class and dancing class. Uh, and that was because for them, uh, it was not something that was appropriate, at least for that particular people. Yeah, well, let's jump into the news so we can discuss how Princess Mako's inevitable discovery of Cardi B's oeuvre will affect uh, Japan's geopolitics for the next hundred years. Uh, Bobby, just before we do so, we need to say thanks to Tim, who bought us five coffees, saying, as Ollie cancelled an Edinburgh show, was way more than and one, um, I, I was supposed to attend. Oh, yeah, I, I did cancel a show he was supposed to attend. I'll pass the ticket refund back your way. That's very nice. I knew he had, I knew the energetic dancing at the start of each performance would eventually catch up with him. That it did. Tim, thank you very much for um, for sending this money on a weird uh, paper trail back. Um, the, the only real beneficiaries have been the fringe ticket office who have taken their commission and buy me a coffee. You haven't seen a show. I haven't managed to perform the show for you, but we're very grateful uh, that you've sent the money our way. Uh, thank you very much, Tim. 
Bobby, shall we jump into the news? Bobby Judah, what's in the news this week? Well, the rumors have been confirmed. Princess Mako will marry her boyfriend this year and move to New York. Hiromu, Ali and I know about as much about the Imperial family as the average Japanese person, so uh, nothing. Why is this a big deal, and why are nationalists so angry about it? Uh, yeah, great question. Um, so this controversy has been brewing uh, since the fall of 2017, uh, when Princess Mako, uh, who is the daughter of uh, now uh, current Crown Prince Akishino, uh, announced that she was going to be uh, engaged to her college sweetheart, a man named Komuro Kei. Uh, they both attended the International Christian University in uh, in Mitaka, Tokyo, uh, and uh, so they announced that marriage. You know, they announced the engagement, but within two or three months, tabloidy magazines and newspapers started digging up on the background of Komuroke uh, and specifically his mother. Yeah, uh, I remember this. The, he, there was so much mudslinging. A question about some some debts of his mother's, right? Yeah, so the allegation is that uh, his mother uh, was uh, engaged to marry to uh, a man and that while they were engaged that this man, who was apparently wealthy, financially supported them. Uh, and when the engagement was called off, uh, he asked the money back from uh, Komuroke's mother uh, and that they refused. Uh, that's the story that the former fiancé has told the tabloids and the tabloids have run with it. And so now they've labeled uh, Komuroke as his mother as sort of, uh, you know, people who are refusing to pay their debts and who are plotting to, uh, you know, marry into the imperial family and run off with one of their daughters to New York. Uh, I think the truth is something quite different, uh, but that that's at least how the tabloids are reporting mm. it. And does this tie into the headlines which which hit this week about how, um, well, depending on wh where you get it from, how Princess Mako has snubbed the uh, the, the handout by the Japanese government to, to, to start her new non-royal life? Is this to kind of show that she's doing it with, with clean hands? So, yeah, that that's actually because I think they're exploring the idea that uh, you know, of, of declining this one-time lump sum money that any marrying uh, royal, you know, uh, daughters would typically get, right? A, a, a money that's, uh, you know, uh, that's some, that goes up to something like 150 million yen, just under 1.4 million US dollars. It's a lump sum. They, they usually get that amount. Um, but the reason why I think uh, Princess Mako and people around her are floating this idea of declining it is is in order to try to placate the public opinion or any kind of backlash uh, in a context where her fiance is accused of having these shady financial dealings. Um, you know, from from Komuroke and his mother's perspective, as you know, he he's actually sort of spoken out and written uh, publicized statements. Uh, at least twice, the second right. one being a 28-pager that came out, I think, in twenty uh, April of 2020 or April of 2021, actually. Um, and in it, he, you know, he details sort of from his perspective how, uh, you know, uh, the understanding was that this was always just a gift. It was never a loan. And it was only at only, you know, a year or two after the 
his mother's engagement was called off that the former fiance suddenly demanded a repayment. They said no, and he went away. And it was only after their, his engagement to Princess Muckle was announced that suddenly that former fiance started showing up and talking to the tabloids yeah. again. That's their side of the story. Should we just dial back a little bit just to make sure that people who, like me, came into this absolutely ignorant. Can we quickly talk about the succession? And and who Princess Mako is in relation to the rest of the royal family and whether she was ever going to be in power. Absolutely. I think you answered your own question when you said she was ever going to be in power. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly. I mean, the imperial household law is very clear, right? That the succession to the imperial throne is only open and available to a male heir. Uh, and so this is why her, yep. her her father, Prince Akshino, who was the younger brother uh, to the current emperor, uh, and so who, you know, while their father was on the throne until very recently, was not, you know, was only second in line to the throne, uh, now is actually, pr pr Prince Princess Mako's father is actually now... Uh, the crown prince first in line to the throne and so on the one hand princess Mako herself is in no danger of becoming an emperor or an empress from certain perspective uh her father is very very close right to becoming an emperor and so i think from a more conservative nationalistic perspective you know that that values the dignity of the imperial household above all things um she is actually a a very important figure who should not be sort of sullied by gossips and scandals. Uh, and her, you know, her ranking as a princess, uh, not all imperial princesses are equal. Actually, she, her, she is a naishin no, or a princess of the blood. So someone who is within two degrees of relation to the reigning monarch. You know, she was the granddaughter of the previous emperor. Now she is the niece of the current emperor. And so she is sort of on the very right. top tier of uh, a Japanese princess, as it were. And we should we should also mention that that her grandfather abdicating the throne was an unprecedented thing to, to abdicate yes. and to kind of like retire from being the emperor without dying uh, was yeah. also kind of a huge shakeup. Yeah. And, you know, that that process was somewhat controversial too because uh you know the japanese imperial household is constitutionally intentionally extremely confined right in what they are able to do uh for example they literally do not have private property unlike the british royals right the constitution says that all imperial property is state property and we will give them everything they need uh and so there is no duchy of lancaster for example uh right like mm. the like queen elizabeth has um and they are also not supposed to get involved in politics or in policy making. This is a point that I wanted to bring up. And again, this will kind of illustrate my my ignorance of Japanese history. But um, whereas other monarchs, other royal families, historically, kind of like there were early historical periods where they wielded real power and real authority, I kind of have the sense that with a few exceptions from a very early, from the very beginning that the Japanese imperial family were always ceremonial figureheads. Yeah, and I think, you know, we could emphasize it a little bit too hard. It's not that different members of the imperial household didn't have, didn't have or wield political influence. So, you know, during the Heian period, for example, the, you know, the 10th century, 9th century, yeah, the reigning emperor really did not rule the country uh, in his own, in his or her own will. Uh, but it was actually his, his, 
his or her father, the former emperor, right. the retired emperor who actually wielded uh, power behind the scenes. Um, and you know, later on, it was you know, it was the uh, the officials of the various shogunate, the warrior governments, and into the modern era, it is really the the state bureaucracy and and eventually the politicians who actually wield political power. It's not to say though, right, that that. Emperors actually never had, even in the modern era, any kind of political influence.、Uh, Emperor Hirohito, for example,、mm. uh, you know, has historians have talked about how he was both on some level culpable、uh, in Japan's expansionism and encouraging some aspects of it, and then later on, he was actually seen to be one of the people who was trying to put the brakes on、uh, Japanese、mm. military sort of,、uh, you know,、uh, expansionism. Uh, especially around the time of the Second World War,、uh, so it's not that they don't have any kind of political power,、um, but it's that in the post World War II context, it, under the post you know post war constitution, the emperor is really not supposed to、uh, sway policy decisions. And in the case of the retirement, it is a you know state policy decision. And so I think even historians who are sympathetic to the emperor's sort of personal plight.、Um, Have noted some anxiety about what、well, what does this mean when the emperor can try to influence and wield government policy and legislation because it needed a legislation to to let him retire,、um, yeah. you know what does it mean for the reigning Japanese symbol monarch to, you know. Make his feelings known in a way that actually sways the prime minister, and even you know the point that Ali made earlier, actually about the princess Mako potentially declining the one-time lump sum, is actually controversial precisely for that point because that money is actually decided on by a committee that is headed by the prime minister. Uh, and the、right. speakers of the lower and upper houses of the Japanese parliament,、mm. and. And so, for the palace to kind of leak out a,、uh, you know, feelers about, well, maybe if we decline this lump sum, lump sum, people will be, you know, less angry about the marriage.、Uh, you know, I've seen historians, point, you know, say that, oh, this is this feels like we're getting into another iffy legal territory where a member of the imperial household is potentially swaying a decision of a committee headed by the prime minister.、Hmm. So what's the what's the scandal then? Is the is the risk that Mako can once she gets married, she's going to get rid of her royal status because of some rules that I don't really understand about who she's marrying, and that that she'll I don't know become Americanized, and then she'll she'll actually have more ability to criticize、uh, the 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 government by virtue of the fact that she's no longer got royal status. Is that the the worst case scenario for for? People that are against her. Yeah, I think so. From the you know the reason why some of the most vocal critics, at least on the Japanese media and talking heads and you know pundits,、um, you know I think the most vociferous critics do tend to come from a more nationalistic,、uh, conservative-minded perspective. People who really see the imperial household and the emperor, but also the you know. Their families,、uh, as a kind of linchpin of Japan's nationhood, that if we tamper with this institution, we are going to, you know, go down the slippery slope of a nation breaking down. And so, from that kind of perspective, right, an ideal way for Mako to be married is to marry someone、uh, who 
uh, has zero controversy, who is preferably from one of the older families, right? Like the one members of the former aristocracy or one of the people who runs major shrines around Japan. Mm-hmm. And because these are the people that Japanese royal daughters tend to get married to even now. Um, or, you know, a good salary man, right? Um, the fact that she's marrying uh, someone who fairly or unfairly has been labeled as having shady financial dealings, uh, who dare to study abroad and is now daring to start a career abroad and to take a royal daughter with him, uh, is I think on the, uh, that in itself is is scandalous and enough and then and and then they come up with all kinds of reasons well the security cost is going to be so expensive um what if you know what if somebody you know attacks her you know uh it's what if they do something uh you know that (laughs) this is america there's no what if right (laughs) it's it's also very very typical of the way that that japan thinks about america i remember like having conversations with Japanese people who were like, well, I'd like to visit America, but I also don't want to get shot. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but I think also there's a recent example of Meghan Markle and and Princess Harry is in the minds of people, right. Of, of these Royals who strike out um, and start talking. Um, Because I think, I think it is true that compared to other Royal daughters who were married, who married previously and, by law, they lose their royal status when they married, which, you know, some people think, I, I think some people have thought of it as a, as a sexist thing. And I think, I do think there is sexism in that law. Um, but yeah. it's also true. And it's worth thinking that she, you know, Princess Mako is like, likely going to be one of the freest former imperial princesses by, by, by being, by becoming a commoner, because now yeah. she can actually have private property. Uh, and now she's going to be overseas, and uh, you know, no other former princesses have done that. Bobby, we're calling it now. They turned down that one point three million dollars because they're going to get an equivalent Spotify deal. Hey, thanks very much for listening to this episode 98 of Japan by River Cruise. We have a new show every single Friday. We look forward to seeing you this time next week. And thank you to our guest this week, Hiromu Nagahara. Hiromu, it was really a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It was so much fun. And uh, if you know the listeners want to follow me on Twitter at Hiromu Nagahara, I promise I will uh, dole out some more random royal trivias. <laughs> thank you. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>